All right, good morning again. Uh, my name is Hojin, and I am the Yonda pastor here at Cornerstone. And um, as was prayed, I have the privilege of preaching God's word this morning. And I meant to show that slide uh, because Creative Communication Ministry uh, created that design and, and helped uh, get, the, get these all printed out. So thank them if you know who they are. It's uh, the, the leaders are Anna Chung and Jeannie Yang, and I know they're going to hate me for pointing them out, but thank them. So uh, though it's only been about two months, uh, many of us can recognize this face. Many of us know exactly who this is. As one of the survivors of the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School shooting in Parkland, Florida back in February, she has been a, a, an activist for gun law reform. She is an 18-year-old high school senior, and somehow she's become a household name. And uh, she's been interviewed by various news sources, and she writes this for herself for a publication called Harper's Bazaar. And she explains why she decided to speak up. And she's talking on behalf of her group, that she started at her high school. We are speaking up for those who don't have anyone listening to them, for those who can't talk about it just yet, and for those who will never speak again. We are grieving, we are furious, and we are using our words fiercely and desperately because that's the only thing standing, be be standing between us and this happening again. And Emma Gonzalez, 18-year-old high school senior, She's impacted our country already, and through her activism, even uh, as recent, I think as a couple weeks ago, laws in Florida are, are getting uh, into motion to raising the age and changing different policies around guns. And on March 24th, she gave a speech at the March for Our Lives in Washington, D.C., and this is where the picture is uh, taken. And this sparked multiple kind of mirrored events, even in the city of Boston. People estimate around 800 different sister events happened for March, of, March for Our Lives in, in the country. And in this time in Washington, D.C., she spoke for six minutes and 20 seconds intentionally. A lot of it was silence because that's how long it took for the gunmen to kill 17 of her fellow classmates. And when we think about Someone like Emma Gonzalez, 18-year-old, so bold, so courageous, we see her kind of as an as, as icon for, for our generation, for the, maybe even the generation before us. She's younger than most of us here. And in so many ways, she's a modern-day hero. And I share this story because we're in the fourth week of our Heroes of the Faith sermon series. And we're looking at different biblical figures uh, different individuals from the, from the Bible, because we want to learn from their trust, their obedience. We want to see their trust and obedience to God. And, and we've looked at Abraham, Nehemiah, and Daniel. And today we want to look at Esther, who is very similar to Emma Gonzalez, or maybe it's vice versa. Esther, who was a young woman, reached a critical moment in her life and left a lasting impact. She played a significant role in bringing about potential change. Esther is a Jewish teenager who becomes queen to the Persian king, and I, I, 
I practice saying his name, and I can't, I know I'm going to botch it up, Ahasuerus, and he's better known as King Xerxes I. And if you watch the, the movie 300, which is a, a fi fictional story, it's, it's based on what King Xerxes uh, attempted to, to attack Greece. And that's a good image if you've watched um, the movie of who King Xerxes was. He was uh, pretty egotistical. He was hedonistic. He was very much into looks. He himself was handsome. He, liked, he, he enjoyed flaunting the things of his kingdom. And somehow, in some way, Esther becomes queen to this king. And the, the big kind of underlying issue is that she's an ethnic minority in the kingdom of Persia. She's a Jew in the Persian Empire, in the Persian city. And as she's serving as queen, this, this individual, this person who becomes a high-ranking official named Haman, interacts with a Jew and irrationally reacts in anger and wants to wipe out all the Jews in the Persian Empire. And this is where Esther kind of arrives on the scene. So today we, we want to look at how Esther proves to, to be a hero to us and how that happens. So if you have your Bibles today, we're going to turn to Esther, uh, the book of Esther chapter 4. The book, book of Esther chapter 4, starting from verse 3, and we'll read until verse 17. Esther chapter 4, verse 3 to 17, and um, I know we sometimes remind you all and sometimes don't, but if you're using your phones, uh, open up your Bible apps if you need, but if you can, refrain from browsing the web and reading your emails. We, you know, a lot of people have prayed for this time to be fruitful, to, to be a word from God to you, and we want to maximize that. So Esther chapter 4, starting from verse 3. So this is after the, the law has been passed. Haman has somehow got a law passed through King Xerxes without him knowing exactly the people group that Haman wants to destroy, making it legal to kill Jews. And this is where we pick up. Esther chapter 4, starting from verse 3. In every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting. And many of them lay in sackcloth cloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments, garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hatak, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hatak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. And Mordecai gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hatak went and told Esther and, uh, what Mordecai had said. Then Esther t spoke to Hatak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, verse 11, all the king's servants and the people of 
the king's provinces, know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come into the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink or for three days, night or day. I and my young women will, fast, will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther ordered him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray briefly. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that it would be a light for us. That as we look into it, we encounter the living God. That these are not just mere words, but they're words to feed us, to sustain us, to equip us, to, to live as your people in this world. And we know it's a complicated world. A world mixed with a lot of good, a lot of bad. But as we look into it, won't you transform us? We don't take that for granted. We pray in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit that we would be transformed through this time. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the book of Esther is about God's providence. If I could sum up the entire book, those two words would be the summary. God's providence. And one uh, Bible scholar defines God's providence as, as this. God, in some invisible or inscrutable way, governs all creatures, actions, and circumstances through the normal and the ordinary course of human life without the intervention of the miraculous. A lot of you may already know this, but there's no mention of God in the entire book of Esther. None of his many names are said or written in the book of Esther. There are no miracles in the book of Esther. There are no prophets or messengers of God's commands. And in a sense, the book of Esther is maybe the most real book in in the entire Bible. Because it's implicitly trying to answer this question that many of us ask today. Is God present or is he absent? In a complicated world, in in a very ambiguous situation with a lot of good, a lot of bad, Is God present or is he absent? And the book of Esther is all about how God works through the lives of ordinary human beings in ordinary ways to fulfill extraordinary purposes. God saves his people, the Jews, through the actions of Esther. And it's her actions that make her so heroic. So this morning we want to look at three ways God makes Esther heroic. Three ways that... Uh, God makes Esther heroic. First, God prepared Esther to be heroic. God prepared Esther. 
Through Esther's family upbringing and personal life experiences and even her character traits, God prepared Esther to live into who she would be a couple years later. And while we don't have too much about uh, who Esther was and her background, we do get some details in chapter 2, verse 7. We read about Mordecai, who brings up Hadassah, that is Esther, the, un- the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and her father and mother had died. And, and when her father and mother had died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So we learn first that Esther, that's not her real name. It's, it's her Persian name. Her real name is Hadassah. And I know there's a lot of Esthers here. Y'all are using the wrong name. Y'all should have, <laughs> y'all should write down Hadassah uh, on your, um, on all your documentations. You're, you're just posing. Um, that, that was her Hebrew name. But because she was in the Persian Empire and she was an ethnic minority, she had to use a Persian name at the risk of being mistreated and oppressed. We also find out that Esther is an orphan, but then was adopted by her cousin, Mordecai. And the scriptures tell us that he acted as a father to her. And then here we also learn that Esther's just objectively, she's physically beautiful. We learn a little bit more in a few verses later in verse 15. After Esther had, had started to gain favor uh, or gain the attention of all the, the king's officials as they were looking for a replacement queen, we read that now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And then in verse 17, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, and he had a lot, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen. Esther conducted herself in a way that won favor with everyone around her. And Esther's specific ethnic identity and family past and personal life experiences were not just insignificant details. Even her physical trait of being beautiful was not just a a tack-on detail about who she was. These all culminated, and God was able to use them, almost unbeknownst to Esther, to lead her to become queen. God used the different aspects, the different experiences of her life in a way, even the things that seem seem like disadvantages at, at first glance, right? Esther is an orphan. Not the most likely person you'd want to crown as as queen. But it may have been exactly what she needed to go through and to be raised by her cousin Mordecai. Because maybe in being raised by Mordecai, and this is, we don't have all the dots connected for us in the book of Esther, but maybe by having Mordecai raise her, that's how she learned to win favor with the people around her. And God works providentially in our lives a lot in the same way. Like Esther, we have a specific ethnic identity. We have a family background. We have a unique set of character traits, even physical traits. We have our personal life experiences. And God is able to use any of those things and all of those things if he would like. And he could use those things for his plan and even prepare us 
for a particular moment in the future where we get to utilize those things for his namesake, for his glory. And um, I debated whether to, to share this because for a good stretch of my life, I actually um, hated being Korean-American. I was born in New York City, born and raised there. Um, I'm a U.S. citizen, but I have a Korean name. Thanks, Mom, you know. Um, <laughs> but that made things complicated. Because with Americans, right, my yellow skin, my Korean name made me not American enough. With anyone who came from Korea, because I was born in the States, my Korean isn't fluent, all of, a, all of a sudden I'm not Korean enough. And I hated it. So every summer when I would get tan, I would just lie and be like, I'm Hawaiian. Um, <laughs> but then all of my Korean friends would be like, you're kidding, you look so Korean. I don't even know what that means. But that's how much I hated being Korean-American. It's an identity that isn't an identity, at least to me. But in recent years, especially as I've been interacting with fellow pastors in our denomination, I've been realizing that my experiences have value. People, like a couple uh, weeks ago, I was invited to a young adult ministry consultation with a bunch of young adult pastors in the denomination. And they were asking me how to minister to young adults, hearing what we were doing here at Cornerstone. And for me, I feel like I don't know what I'm doing here at Cornerstone. But something about being Korean-American, going to a Korean church, Korean immigrant church that wrestled with second generation, how to minister to them, somehow I, I learned that's God's providence, and I'm able to serve, I hope, all of you effectively because of that. Could I have known that that's what God wanted for me? For the longest time, I didn't want to come to Cornerstone when I was looking for a church. That's my confession. But I've come to love it. It's not perfect, but I love it. How do you view your family background, your, your upbringing, your ethnic background, your personal life experiences? Are they just secondary details to what really don't matter for your future? Or do you see them as even setbacks for your life? Or will you start to ask, even if you don't get an answer right away, God, are you preparing me for something in the future? And I talked to a lot of you here at Cornerstone who became Christians here, and you're always knocking, I've only been Christian for a year, or I've only been Christian for a, a few months. But when I look at you, I, I see you, and I see God has been preparing you for 20 years. All your experiences as, a, as, as someone who didn't believe, those can also be used for God's kingdom, for God's purposes. That's what God's providence means. And like Esther, God prepares us to be heroic. Secondly, God placed Esther to be heroic. God placed Esther to be heroic. Not only does God prepare Esther through her personal life, but God places Esther in a particular context of the world, in a political and social situation in which she can live out and act heroically. So again, Esther lived in the 5th century BC in the Persian city of Susa. Uh, Pastor Bill spoke about Nehemiah, who led a group of Jews back to Jerusalem when the Persians were in power, but for whatever reason, a bunch of Jews didn't go, and they stayed in Persia. 
and Esther was part of them. The Persian king Xerxes, he unknowingly crowns an ethnic minority as queen. And at the same time, Xerxes appoints this, this brutish guy, Haman, who is, in, in like the most simple way to describe him, he's an anti-Semite. And Esther is kind of dropped into the situation. In so many ways, it would seem like this is the worst situation for a teenage ethnic minority to act heroically. All the chips are stacked against her. And we read earlier in chapter 4, verse 13, then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think for yourself in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. He's saying, just because you live in the palace doesn't mean you're not at risk. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from another place. But your, you and your father's house will perish. And this is the phrase that's probably the most famous phrase of Mordecai's. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Who knows? And Mordecai questions Esther and, and almost gets her to, to consider a greater purpose. And I believe he's, he's implying a God-given purpose for why she is where she is with the, the specific people that she's with and at that specific moment in time. Mordecai's question highlights Esther's current place in the midst of a real need. Mordecai's question causes Esther to think about what influence she has in, in the midst of things that she didn't have any control over. Right? She didn't have any control over the political situation, the social situation, but Mordecai is saying you do still have influence. God led you, he placed you to, to be in a situation, in a role where you do have influence. God was providentially preparing her. And Esther, historians say that she was probably 13 when she became queen. 13. In a land that was not her home. She was living in the palace. And it was five years after she became a queen, if you read Esther, where this decree goes out. And pretty much says, if you... If you kill the Jews, <clears throat> Haman will put money into the king's treasury. That's how he motivated King Xerxes to, to sign off on this. And this is where Mordecai says, and who knows whether you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. <clears throat> Excuse me. A couple weeks back, uh, Pastor Danny talked about uh, Black Panther, and I hope y'all saw it. Um, but you, if you did watch it, you know who um, this is. She was actually one of my favorite characters. Shuri, King T'Challa's younger sister, who is this brilliant inventor behind all of the technology of Wakanda and even the suit that he wears. Shuri, Shuri is played by Letitia Wright, who is a 24-year-old Guyanese British um, actress. <laughs> and while the fictional character Shuri will definitely inspire many, many, many people to come, especially um, African and African-Americans, 
It is the real life of Letitia Wright that I want to focus on a little bit. In any uh, interview that you can search for uh, on her, she's very vocal about something that she claims that she says is so hard to talk about in the black community, which is mental health. She openly shares how she took a two-year hiatus from acting because of her struggle with depression, and she still admits that every day she struggles with depression. This is a 24-year-old uh, woman that we would envy, right? The fame that she has and, and the, the status that she's, she's enjoying right now. But she's using this, this fame at this particular moment to talk very openly about something that's not easy to talk about. And Letitia Wright started acting in 2011, but the fame of Black Panther was seven years later. And when I think about her, I, I, I ask the same question as Mordecai. Who knows whether she's come to this place in her career, in her fame, for such a time as this to leave a lasting impact around talking about mental health issues in the black community. And coincidentally or uncoincidentally, however you want to view, view it, she's a believer. And she talks so vocally about how her faith in Jesus Christ has helped heal a lot of the mental health struggles that, that she faces. And it could be asked of us too. Every single one of us has influence, believe it or not. You have your sphere of influence, whether it's family, friends, coworkers, classmates, neighbors, uh, acquaintances, and even the people that you will meet in the future. Those are unique touches that God has, has placed you around. And at the same time, you're currently in the United States, whether temporary or long-term. And we don't have to think much to realize that the political and social situation is very unique right now. And even Pastor Danny talked a little bit about the, the racial tensions. We need to consider that question too. Who knows whether you all, you and me, have not come into this particular time, especially if we're believers of Jesus Christ, for such a time as this. We can chalk up all the coincidences, coincidences in our lives as just coincidences, or you can start to ask yourself, whether there is a greater purpose, if there is a God-given divine purpose for the things that you're seeing and, and enduring and witnessing. Like Esther, God might have intentionally placed you somewhere beyond your control, beyond your awareness to a specific place at a specific time around specific people so that you can use your influence and live heroically for the kingdom of God. And I don't say that as we need a definitive answer right now. I say that as we need to be like watchmen, ready to, to look for when it is that God is looking, us, looking for us to act. So God prepares Esther, God places Esther, and lastly, God provided Esther the opportunity to be heroic. God provided Esther the opportunity to be heroic. If the book of Esther is about God's providence, chapter 4 is where God's providence and human responsibility meet. Everything I've talked about, it's God has done, but all of a sudden in chapter 4, we see what Esther does in response to what God has done. We're going to reread Mordecai's words. Chapter 4, verse 14. 
For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. Mordecai is saying, if you choose not to do anything, it's fine in the greater scheme of things. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will, will rise for the Jews from another place. He's saying you can choose to stay silent and not do anything. It's a real choice you can make. And he says even if you do decide to stay silent, deliverance, salvation will come from another place. He has faith. And after hearing these words from Mordecai, Esther is faced with this critical decision point. Esther is faced with a choice to whether to identify with her people, with God's people, or to not. She's living as an undercover Jew in the palace of the king of Persia. And Mordecai gives news that the people of her ethnic background are facing the threat of genocide. Esther is faced with that choice, whether to identify with her people, with God's people, or whether to not. So the choices were to speak up in hopes of saving the Jews or to stay quiet in hopes of preserving her own life. One Bible commentator writes this. He, she says, God's purposes are not thwarted by the failure of one individual to respond positively to his leading. And the individual is truly free, truly free to refuse it, though this leads to loss rather than gain. Chapter, verse, chapter 4, verse 15 is the pivot point in the entire book. All of a sudden, starting from verse 15, Esther is the protagonist. She's the main character. Thus far, Esther has been relatively passive. Things happen to her. She becomes queen. But in verse 15, she reaches that critical decision point and does something about it. We read this. Then Esther told them, the messengers who were talking to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my, my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. She reaches that critical decision point and says, all right, I, I need to do something about it, but I can't do it myself. She asks Mordecai to gather all the Jews to pray and to fast. She also says, I'm going to pray and fast too. And then she makes a plan. And if you read the rest of Esther, it's a genius, genius plan. She, just, she doesn't go like, oh, can you save the Jews? She works Haman with the intelligence that she has. It's so savvy. You got to read it. She's brilliant. But not only that, it's that last phrase, Esther's most famous words, if I perish, I perish. Esther is given the opportunity to step up and do something about the predicament of the Jews. Uh, some of you have read this, but uh, there's a book written by C.S. Lewis called The Screwtape Letters. And it's a fictional exchange between a senior demon named Screwtape trying to apprentice and train his uh, nephew, who's pretty incompetent and, and uh, just like he's like failing at being a demon, which is really like satirical and, and funny to read. Uh, his nephew's name is Warm, Wormwood, and uh, Screwtape is trying to get Wormwood to bring the downfall of, of a person named the patient. And this is one letter that Screwtape writes. 
he, first off, he says, like, you're, you're, let's, let's cut to the chase. You're not doing a good job of bringing down the patient. And he says this. It remains to consider how we can retrieve this disaster. He's, he's staying true to his faith. This is a disaster. The great thing is to, pre to prevent his doing anything. Prevent his doing anything. As long as he does not convert it into action, it does not matter how much he thinks about this new repentance. Let the little brute wallow in it. Let him, if he has any bent that way, write a book about it. That is often an excellent way of sterilizing the seeds which the enemy, he, the, the demon calls God the enemy, plants in a human soul. And he continues and says, let him do anything but act. This, this Christian, let him do anything but act on his beliefs, on his convictions. No amount of piety in his imaginations and affections will harm us if we keep it out of his will. As one of the humans has said, active habits are strengthened by the repetition, by repetition, but passive ones are weakened. The more, one, more often he feels without acting, the less he will be able ever to act, and in the long run, the less he will be able to feel. Your affectionate uncle, screw tape. In this satirical book, C.S. Lewis is challenging believers to consider that good intentions of obedience, even emotions caused by Jesus and, and God and the Holy Spirit are not enough. Our, our lives eventually need to reflect what we claim to believe and love. Passivity extinguishes even the strongest emotions. And not to say that songs are bad, but a lot of times we, we treat our songs as if we've, we've done the obedience. But the question is, after these songs are quieted, you go to your workplaces, your neighborhoods, your, your classrooms, and you reach a critical decision point, will you choose to identify with the people of God or to not? In uh, Esther's most famous words, chapter 4, verse 16, if I perish, I perish. I wish, or I, I pray for more believers to have that type of mentality. Generally, we're very risk-averse in our faith. It's, it, we don't pray, if I perish, I perish. We pray, God, give me these things so that I could be faithful to you. But we need more believers in Cornerstone in Boston and in the world who are taking risks and facing odds that are strongly stacked against us. And this sounds crazy, but I wish more people at Cornerstone would get fired for their faith. If given that critical decision point. Because if you have faith in a God who provides, then the God who provided you that job can also provide you the, with the next. But you're unwilling to identify apart from the people of God. It sounds crazy, but I wish more of us would be ridiculed and persecuted for our faith in Jesus Christ. I wish some of you working professionals would get overlooked for promotions because of your faith in Jesus Christ. I wish some of you students would radically uphold the God-given command of Sabbath because you see it as a necessary gift and not a burden of obligation. And I wish more of us would have an if I perish, I perish mentality about living for God. 
I think that's what it means to be heroic in our day and age. But a lot of times, and I know it's true of me too, we have the if I perish, I perish mentality in the wrong areas. We have it about our work, our studies, our money, our romantic relationships, and we make great sacrifices there and take significant risks in those areas of life. But when it comes to to following Jesus, to, to trusting and obeying, we're just like, I can't say if I perish, I perish. And I say this with a finger pointed at me, too. And we need to do this together. We need more Mordecais in, in Cornerstone who are, who are encouraging and speaking truth into people who are in Esther, critical moment, decision, situations. And vice versa. We need to learn how to, uh, whichever way I said it, I forgot. We need to be truth tellers, and we also need to be people who live it out in action. In Esther's decision to act heroically, she moves from passivity into action. She shows that it's not really about her. It's the extraordinary God who is able to work through ordinary people. So the question for us is, in what ways has God provided you opportunities to move from passivity into action? In what ways has God, or will God, bring you to critical decision points to identify with God's people and seek the well-being and salvation of others. And Esther, by, by no means, is a perfect heroine, but she, even in her imperfection, reflects our, or foreshadows our ultimate hero of Jesus Christ. And we talked about Esther being prepared by God, but Jesus, too, was prepared. He came to earth. He lived 30 years of ordinary life before he started his ministry, preparing to be the necessary hero for us, for our salvation on the cross. Like Esther, God placed Jesus into a particular political and social situation. He came as a Jew. He came even into a socioeconomic status under the Roman Empire because he was supposed to have influence during that time. And like Esther, God provided the opportunity to be, to be heroic, laying down his perfect life, to be crucified on a cross so that anyone who had put their faith in him would not perish, but have eternal life. Esther's words were, were if I perish, I perish. Jesus was, if when I perish. When I perish, they will live. So today, we want to look at Esther, that God prepared her, placed her, and provided her the opportunity to be heroic, but we have to apply it to us. If we follow Jesus, if we believe that he's able to use us, that he wants to use us, which is all over the scriptures, then he will prepare you, he will place you, and he will provide you the opportunity to be heroic. And one last thing that I do want to share is, we've, we're calling this series The Heroes of the Faith, and it's, it's a easy to think that our goal is to be a hero, to be labeled in the hero category, but that's not our ultimate goal. Our, our, we want everyone to, to live faithful lives of trust and obedience so that when given the opportunity, when faced with that critical decision point, we do act heroically, but the goal is that we want God to be known and his will to be done in this world. And that's how heroes are formed. Heroes are are created in the mundane moments, but they emerge in the critical moments. So don't think that you, you need to look out for a moment to be a hero. 
Be faithful every day, and those moments will come to your eyes. God will convict you. God will prepare you, place you, and provide you everything you need to respond as needed. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this sister who has come hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And by no means do we want to hail her as, as the, the perfect heroine to, to emulate. But even in the ways that you showed up in, in her life, even beyond her knowing, reminds us that, that we are in relationship for those of us who profess faith with a God who is in control of the entire world, of every single detail. And that you want ordinary people through ordinary means to bring about your extraordinary will. That you want more and more people, your people, to live out radical, ordinary faith wherever they are, whoever they're with, whenever they can. Help us to take this seriously, God. Help us to practice it on, on, on a daily basis. Help us to be on the lookout for ways that you're preparing us, the ways that you've placed us. And when given the opportunity for that critical moment, that critical decision moment, that we would respond, not in passivity, but in action. To strengthen my sisters and brothers here, we thank you that we don't have to be perfect. We just have to be persistent in faithful trust and obedience. We thank you that your grace washes all our failures away, all our passivity even away. There's no weight of that here. We want to pray against that in the name of Jesus. Liberate us to face some of our fears, to act courageously, act faithfully, and act in the name of Jesus in this world. We thank you so much for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's rise.